Hey, I, I was just, I was in the back just singing right now with you, and I was thinking that uh, we better get used to worshiping him, because if this is going to be a forever endeavor, might as well just use this time as a training ground, right? And um, in one way, that's a very humbling situation, because uh, we don't know each other, and we're going to have eternity to get to know each other but i think the reason why we're going to be eternally with him is because it's going to take eternity to get to know him so we rejoice for that everlasting father so why don't you um would you pray with me as we focus on isaiah chapter 9 a great text and as we celebrate this this season um, that is coming upon us and we just rejoice in what's about to happen so father we just thank you this morning we praise you for your goodness as we meditate on your truth, not only today, but every time we get together, we realize a few things. First of all, we are undeserving of your love. Father, I pray that today as we come together, as we're gathered together here this morning, I pray that all the different aspects of this worship time, from the singing to the announcements to the um, to the, 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 the prayer, through the message, through the children's ministries and youth ministries. I pray that all those things will be for your honor and for your glory. And Father, I pray today for myself that you would not let any word come out of my mouth that will make somebody go to the left or to the right. But I pray that you humbly use your word to direct and guide and protect us and cause us to wish and want to give you praise. We praise you and we thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Yeah, I'll be okay. Thank you, Nate. Hey, can we give this guy a hand? Can we give this guy a hand? I, th I think he's like a cat with nine lives and he uses all the nine lives at the same time. Maybe it's seven lives. Maybe nine lives is just in Brazil. I just, go figure. Uh, hey, Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, would you open your Bibles, your apps, app in there, whatever you have. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Uh, since Isaiah is not a book that we actually study and we're not currently studying, let me just give you a little bit of a background of what's going on here. Because we, we, we know the words, uh, for unto us... A child is born, a son was given. But what is, what is the background of this story? So Isaiah was a, a prophet who lived in Jerusalem. And um, when Isaiah started to proclaim his message to the people, his message can be defined in two words. The first one is the word of judgment. Isaiah proclaimed a message of judgment uh, to the leaders in Israel and to the leaders in Judah. And you know by this time, around 750 BC, Israel had been divided into the northern tribes and the southern part. So it was Judah and Israel. And so when Isaiah is preaching, he's preaching a message of judgment to, those, to that nation that had been divided and the leadership had, had oppressed the people. And the nation actually rebelled against God to the point that life in Jerusalem and life in the nation of Israel at that time was, was very hard. The message of judgment that Isaiah is going to bring to them is a message that is going to tell the leaders of the nation that God's going to use 
two nations, the Assyrians and the Babylonians, in the future to come and bring judgment upon them. And it is also in the midst of that judgment and that, that announcement of judgment that God's going to actually allow Isaiah to bring a message of hope. Now, I fail very often as a father to focus on the hope that comes because I am so focused on the punishment. And it is in times like this one today that I realize that I am very happy that I am not the one in charge. Because God is the one that's actually doing what, he needs, to be done, what needs to be done in order to be, bring discipline to the nation. But he, he's also comforting them to say, hey, listen, after, after the punishment takes place, there is hope for you. And I think Isaiah, when he writes this, he remembers what has been told to him in the past and to every single person in the nation of Israel, that one day a king would come and that he would rule over the Davidic kingdom. And that's what we call the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, when we look more specifically into the book of Isaiah, we realize that Isaiah is going to pro proclaim that message to them. But in the beginning of this, Isaiah is actually confronted with his own sinfulness in light of God's holiness. And when those two things collide, Isaiah realizes very quickly that he's unworthy to be in the presence of God because God is holy, 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 and he is sinful, sinful, sinful. And that reflection upon himself is a reflection that Isaiah sees and reflects upon every single person in the nation of Israel because now all of them, based on that confrontation, Isaiah is seeing all of them as sinful individuals who need to be confronted with the holiness of God. Isaiah is going to think through this experience and then God's going to commission him. Who will go? Who will go? And Isaiah goes, and he takes a message. And in Isaiah chapter 7, the first thing he does is he confronts King Ahaz, who was the leader at that time, and he says, listen, you're not leading the people the right way. You're not leading them according to God's covenant, and you're not leading them for the honor and glory of God so that the people can be prosper. And Ahaz, in one way, he doesn't want to change. So Isaiah says, listen, judgment is coming. It is knocking at your door. And then the Assyrians will come and they will take us from here. Later on, in Isaiah chapter 9, we'll see why this message of hope is so significant. And so, with that in mind, in your outline, you have the first main point here from Isaiah chapter 9 is the promise of the coming light. Let me read this first two verses again for us here really quickly. The gloom will be displayed for those who are anxious. In earlier times, he, God himself, humiliated the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But now he brings honor to the way of the sea, the region beyond the Jordan, in Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness see a bright light. Light shines on those who live in a deep darkness. Now, to say that spiritual and political and any other darkness was hanging over the nation here is an understatement. They were in really, really bad shape. And so Isaiah is going to explain this. And, and if you look, once again, look at verse 22 of chapter 8. It says this, 
when one looks out over the land, so Isaiah is putting himself in a position where he can evaluate the land. So he's just imagine with him here, he's evaluating the land. He says, when someone looks out over the land, he sees, and here's what he sees, distress, darkness, gloom, anxiety, darkness, and people forced out of the land. Now, I know you like to go on vacation. This is probably not your destination. But we laugh about this, but, but here's what we need to know. This is not the destination that God wanted for his own people. God doesn't want his people to be in darkness, distress, gloom, anxiety, darkness again. Now you, you see the emphasis here, how, how bad things are? Not only that, look at verse 19. Look what he says in verse 19. He says this, the latter part of verse 19. He says, should people not seek the oracles from their gods by asking the dead about the destiny of the living? Now, where do you go for hope? Isaiah is saying, you, you, you want to find hope in the middle of a dark, distress, anxiety situation, and, and you go, according to verse 19, you go to the oracles so they can intervene among the dead. So I grew up in southern Brazil. Just to put things in perspective, when I read this, I think about where I grew up. So I grew up in southern Brazil, and when I was there five years ago, a survey came out saying that the, the southernmost state where I grew up in Brazil had 65,000 locations, listen to this, 65,000 locations for spiritism or spirit worship. That's 10 million people. That's the size of the state of Indiana. I think there's probably five times more people practicing spiritism where I grew up than people claiming the name of Jesus as a means of salvation. And this is exactly where the nation of Israel is. They're, they're finding their hope in the dead. Forgetting that the God who has saved us is a living God. Now, when you get to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1, Isaiah is going to give them the first glimpse of hope. And this is where we're going to camp out now, hope. He's going to say this again, let me read. The gloom will be dispelled from those who were anxious. In earlier times, he humiliated the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, but now he brings honor to the way of the sea, the region beyond the Jordan, and Galilee of the nations. Now, gloom will be dispelled. Gloom will be no more. And why? Because in earlier times, God humiliated them by allowing certain things to take place. Now, 2 Kings chapter 15, if you want to jot down this verse, verse 29, is one of the reasons why this is so significant. It talks about the king of Assyria coming down and literally taking them into captivity. He captures the people. He captures them in the territory of Naphtali, which is where, by, by the Sea of Galilee, on the northern part of Israel. So he, first, first people that are, that are going to miss their jobs and lose their homes are going to be the ones on the northern part, and that's exactly what's happening here. 
Humiliation would come. But prior to it, they would hear that God's promise of hope in the midst of suffering needs to be something that they need to keep with themselves because they are being disciplined. And that's why I said to you in the beginning, I fail sometimes as a father to say to my kids, even though this is punishment and doesn't feel good, I love you and there's hope for you. And this is what God does. And that is why you need to be very thankful that I am not your God. Because maybe I would not give you the hope that you need in the midst of your sin. And hope here is significant because, listen to this, hope provides relief. They would not see any more gloom, any more darkness, no more affliction from a pagan nation. How come the God of the universe, the one who spoke everything into existence, who has his own people, allowed those people to be under pagan oppression? Oh, it's not because God was wanting that to take place, but because the people of God rejected the relationship they had. So hope provides relief. In verse 2 right here, right now, look at this. Look what it says. The people walking in darkness. Now you see the theme, right? It's just dark, dark, dark. And it's not dark chocolate, okay? I know you're thinking about that right now. That's not what it means. This is spiritual darkness. The people walking in darkness see a bright light. Light shines on those who live in the land of deep darkness. Now you see that the hope here is based also on the character of God. Okay, it's based on the character of God because God is the one who has a track record. Isaiah is not giving them hope saying, you know what, I'm really good. You got to trust in me. You say, no, no, don't trust in me. Trust in the God who has a perfect track record to take care of you. The hope here is also an undeserving gift. I had a friend of mine one time who, um, he got slapped in the face by another guy. And as a guy, you never do that to another guy. You just, the relationship is never going to be restored unless God has to intervene. And I remember this, this guy, friend of mine, coming to know the Lord. And the, one of the first things he does is he goes over to this guy and apologizes. It was an undeserving offering. He didn't have to do that. It wasn't his fault. But he apologized because he realized the relationship was more important. This is an undeserving gift in the sense that people are now dwelling in darkness. Listen to this. Picture this in your mind. They're dwelling in darkness, and they see a great light. They did nothing to turn that light on or to come up with a light by themselves. The light just came. This is not what God intended for the nation in that situation, but God gives them hope by providing them the hope of an undeserving gift. And so somebody has said that darkness here is the absence of light. And if that is true, then darkness is the rejection, listen to this, of the character of God. This hope is also based on God's intervention. Did you see? They didn't have to come up with the light by themselves. The light would just comes. God is the one that brings this to them. I was in seminary long time ago 
And I was invited to preach for the first time in our church plant that we were working as, as seminarians. And um, I went to this coffee shop with now my wife up in Dixon City, right next to Scranton, Pennsylvania. And I get to this thing, I'm studying for my message. I, it's, they asked me to preach in, on Valentine's Day. I'm a single guy and uh, I'm studying and I'm gonna preach about the love of God, okay? And I'm so glad that that message was not recorded. Not that this message today is any better, but I'm just glad that that one is not available. So I'm sitting there and Larry walks in and he hears me talking about my passage. So he turns and he asks me a question. And we started talking. It turned out to be an evangelistic conversation. At the end of the conversation, I offer Larry the gospel invitation. And Larry was very excited until he heard the words, this is a free gift. He says, no, I can't, I can't take that. I, I can't take that. I work for everything in my life. You see, God's intervention is not necessary because you can work for the light that he wants to offer you. God's intervention is free because not only there's nothing you can do to please him, but because you've done everything to displease him, and he needs to come your way to rescue you. And Larry did not understand that. And I think about that conversation very often because Larry, in one sense, was acting just like the nation of Israel. And that's why Isaiah's message here is so significant because in one way, this message is the message that we need to hear today. Now look at verses three to five. It's kind of hard to find joy in the midst of suffering, but this is exactly what Isaiah is going to do here. Verse three, you have enlarged the nation. You give them great joy. Now look who is doing all the action here. You have enlarged the nation. You have given them great joy. They rejoice in your presence as harvesters rejoice, as warriors celebrate when they divide the plunder. God not only will bring the light, but he's going to actually, in the process of giving them the light, he's going to grow them. And that's part of it in our lives right now as Christians. God doesn't want to just to come and rescue you and put you on, I'm going to use a, a sports illustration here, and put you on the bench. He doesn't want you to even be in the stadium seating. He wants you to be out in the field. He wants you to grow as a body. And God would have to do that for the nation because he's going to decimate them. He's going to hum humiliate them. And what Israel needed to understand is exactly what we need to understand as a nation now. That it is God's doing that produces this fruit. And that growth comes from no other place than from him. Now, there's two illustrations here, and we'll go through quickly here. The first one is the joy of plenty. And the idea here is the harvesters. They're harvesting and they're collecting that in which was hard work. There's joy in there. And Isaiah is assimilating that very agricultural illustration that they would understand to say that this is exactly the joy that God's, God's bringing to us. But remember, after punishment. 
The second one is the joy of victory. For an army to go battle against somebody else, they would destroy them and they would bring back with them all the goods. And when they arrived back in the place where they were before, they would share everything that was collected. There is joy in there. And that's exactly what Isaiah is doing. He's emphasizing that the future joy that God's going to bring to them in comparison to the joy that they don't have at the moment because their situation is darkness, gloom, anxiety, and more darkness. But here's why rejoicing will take place. Look at verse 4. For their oppressive yoke and the club, of their, the club that strikes their shoulders, the cudgel the oppressor uses on them, you have shattered as in the day of Midian's defeat. Now, this is God's assurance of joy here. Once again, this, this, this text bleeds God's action. It's all about him working. Assurance comes from God's actions, not, not from ours. But Isaiah does something very similar here. So often in my house, when we want to give an illustration to our kids, we, we actually bring something that's very similar to them or easy for them to assimilate. Usually we talk about family relationships. And what Isaiah does here, he brings an illustration from a past experience from the nation of Israel. And everybody knows the story between Gideon and the 300. Now, in Judges chapter 7, let me read this for you, verse 12 and then verse 20 to 22. Here's what it says. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people from the east cover the valley like a swarm of locusts. Now, let me, let me summarize this. There was lots of them. Okay? Their camels, listen to how many they were. Their camels could not be counted. I mean, I think I can count camels pretty good. I mean, it's like, I come here, it's like there's 250 of you, 300, yeah. Camels are larger, so you would imagine there's lots of people. But here's the illustration. Here's what he's going to say. Listen to this. They were as numerable as the sand of the seashore. Those are the camels. All three units blew their trumpets, verse 20, and broke their jars. They held their torches in their left hand and the trumpets in the right. Then they yelled, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. They stood in order all around the camp. The, the whole Midianite army ran away. They shouted and they scrambled away. When the 300 men blew their trumpets, the Lord caused the Midianites to attack one another with their swords throughout the camp. Now Isaiah is going to use this illustration to say that just like in, the Gideon, in Gideon's time, God's going to have to intervene and he's going to one that's going to bring you back from the humiliation you're about to face. And that is the point. So often in life, God is the one that needs to bring you back. And I would dare to say that so often and very often to the point that 100% of the time is true, God is the one that needs to bring you back. So let me ask you this. For Isaiah, as it was for Gideon, this was an impossible situation. What impossible situation are you facing? What seems impossible to you? What difficult, difficulty seems to be too much? Is it a relationship? Is it health? Is it finances? 
family member? Well, let me ask you this. What's causing you to live perhaps in darkness? If you want to find the answer, you don't have to go too far. (laughs) You just have to look at the one who would bring the bright light as Isaiah described to realize that he is the same one that has the answer for you. Verse five, indeed, every boot that marches and shakes the earth and every garment dragged through the blood is used as fuel for the fire. Now, when we came back from Brazil through, uh, a little bit over two years ago, we stayed at somebody else's house for a period of like three to four months somebody from this church, and we were blessed by that. Our house in Brownsburg, we had renters in there, and we needed to wait until April for them to move, so we stayed at somebody else's house, and uh, they had a fireplace. And uh, in Brazil, you don't need fireplaces, okay? Christmas time, it's 100 degrees. My kids were remembering this week how much fun it was to just go into the pool and just, just have fun as a family. Well, you can't do that in here. So I decided to please my family by buying some wood. So I went, went through the internet, found some, some random guy that I've never met before, and I ordered a truckload of wood. So he comes and he dumps this stuff in there, and, and I'm not very familiar with what kind of wood to buy, but I know exactly that the one he brought wasn't good. But I had paid him, so he dumped everything in there, and I tried to make a fire, and I learned a few lessons. Actually, I didn't learn. I was reminded of a few things that I knew before. First, one, first of all, you cannot light a fire with wet wood. N- number two, you, you, wet wood, even when it catches on fire, it doesn't burn well. Number three, when it starts to burn, it stinks. Number four... You should never buy wood from a guy you've never met. (laughs) And number five, you should never buy wood from a guy you've never met. (laughs) So now I have this pile of wood and I'm, I'm trying to make a fire and I'm realizing this is not going well, but here's the point. It is funny looking back, even though I wish I still had the $85 I paid for, but, 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 but just think with me for a second what Isaiah chapter 9 verse 5 says. Listen to this. Indeed, every boot that march, marches and shakes the earth and every garment. This is a, the illustration of a powerful army. And shakes um, the earth and every garment dragged through blood. Listen, this is a, a battlefield here. But now here's what it says. It's used for the fire. You and I would not be able to make that catch on fire. But God uses, what Isaiah is telling them, that God uses everything for his own good and for his own purposes. Even the boot that marches and shakes the earth and every garment that's dragged through the blood will be used by God for his purposes. Even the wood that I buy that doesn't fit to what I want to do can be used by God for his purposes. 
God does not have the same problem that we do. But here's the beauty of it. This is also true in the Christian life. In Romans chapter 8, verse 35 to 37, God talk, Paul talks about um, a very important aspect of the Christian life, that we are more than conquerors. And you've heard that, but here's why that's so significant. Because he says, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. Apart from all those things that can cause you damage, we are more than conquerors. And that's why Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 through 5, gives us this illustration that God can, can move somebody from gloom into glory, from a former life into a new life, from darkness into light, from sadness into rejoicing, from oppression into freedom, and from defeat into victory. That is the God we serve. Now, the last reason, and probably the most famous one, comes from the last two verses, and I'm going to jump right into this. Verse 6, the glory of the coming light. For a child has been born to us, a son has been given to us. He shoulders responsibility, and he's called Wonderful Advisor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Verse 7, his dominion will be vast, and he will bring immeasurable prosperity he will rule in David's throne and over David's kingdom, establishing and strengthening by promoting justice and fairness. From this time forward and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of heaven, heaven's armies will accomplish this. Now listen to this. Who could have imagined that the solution for their problem, according to Isaiah, would be in a child? We have the mighty army of the Assyrians coming to destroy you, to take you into captivity. And Isaiah says that the hope for their problem is a little baby, 20 inches, eight pounds, a little bit of hair. Now, there's some very important things here, so let me give you a few. The first one in your outline is a gift. This child was born as a gift to the nation of Israel. Isaiah is going to use the repetition here for child and son just to emphasize the point so they don't miss the point here. There's a child that's going to be born. There's a son that's going to be given to us. And in this illustration... Isaiah is trying to illustrate that both humanity and the deity of that child who is to come is going to be present. The child born here is the part of humanity that Jesus is going to express later, the Messiah would express. And the son who is giving is focusing on his deity. Now, when we looked at this, we realized that there is the preexistence of a child. If this child is deity, therefore this child must exist before he arrives. And so this gift that God is giving us here is suggesting actually the pre-existence of Jesus Christ. And he's emphasizing the picture of Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. Where the virgin will give birth. This is a miraculous occasion. This is a glorious demonstration of what God is doing. He's not changing anything. He's building on the promises that he's giving us in the past. Now number two, we know that this child is going to be in government. My translation says here 
that he shoulders responsibility. Yours might say that um, the government was upon his shoulder. The, the idea is the same, okay? He's going to rule over God's people. Isaiah is actually affirming not only what this child is going to do, but he's affirming the future lordship and leadership and rulership of this child who would reign over a literal kingdom, an earthly kingdom that surpasses all other governments that any other person has ever seen. Now, when I read this, I ask this question about this text, and I want to I answer that with you. What will this kingdom look like? Once again, if you come to my house and I'm disciplining my children, you realize that in that moment, what you see is me. So in one way, this kingdom is going to have to look like its king. And here's what I think is really interesting about this, because this kingdom is going to reflect his character, the one who is actually in control, governing. It will be a selfless enterprise where power and wisdom will be used to proclaim God's agenda and not his agenda. It will be a kingdom of peace where the king is accessible, invisible, mighty and powerful, and yet loving and gentle and caring and forgiving. So yes, he, he deserves to rule because he's all those things that none of us and nobody else who's ever been born and will, will ever be born will ever be able to accomplish, but only him. And that's why Hebrews chapter 1 says that he is the radiance of God's glory. Now, he's not only governing, we also see his greatness. He will possess the character that's reflected in his four descriptive names here. Now, listen to, listen to what McLean says. He says this, What the wor world needs, as the prophet saw clearly, is not primarily a better philosophy of government or a more per perfect system of legislation, but a person who has the character, wisdom, and power needed to rule for God among men. Only he can do. Now, here's the first name, wonderful counselor or advisor, which means his wisdom will transcend human wisdom. The counselor here creates no confusion. He gives no bad advice. He gives his people hope through life's decisions. And unlikely any human counselor, he has at his disposal divine wisdom and knowledge. He does not need to hear about our circumstances before we voice them because he knows them already. His counsel is free. He's available 24-7. His office never closes. And his agenda is never too full that he cannot hear you. He is truly a wonderful counselor. He's also a mighty God. This is, once again, a declaration of the deity of this child. He's, he's not only mighty, but his might is made visible and it's personable. I've had some friends in the past, especially when I was, when, when I was in college, and, and, and I felt like sometimes um, I was not too cool to be friends with them because they were, they're, they, were, they were too cool to be there to start with. This is not him. He's mighty and he's personable. 
the child who would eventually be born and placed in a manger, listen to this, is the one that created the universe and now, according to Colossians, holds it together. He's also called the everlasting father. Now, Isaiah is not messed up in his theology or when he says he's the everlasting father. He's not confused with the God the Father idea. And I think he's not confused because a very familiar text to you, Isaiah 53.10, you can look with me right now. Here's what it says. Though the Lord desired to crush him, talking about the heavenly father, to crush him and make him ill, once restitution is made, he will see descendants and enjoy long life and the Lord's purpose will be accomplished through him this child will have descendants now throughout my life if you know a little bit of my history you realize that I had a father who was present in my life but he was absent mentally he was there but he wasn't and I'm not saying this to diminish who he is but I'm saying this to show you that throughout the years as a believer, God has brought many godly men into my life who became father figures without being my biological parent. Jesus is this description. His descendants because of the work he's done. Now he's also the Prince of Peace. Isaiah is going to declare here that the peace and prosperity will be part of the kingdom. You can't have a kingdom without peace and prosperity. Every, every single nation in the world wants to have peace and prosperity. But you can find that apart from this child. This week I found an interesting article. I was trying to identify how, how people actually, where do they find peace? And I found, I found a counseling article with eight suggestions, and I realize that this is exactly the suggestion that every single article gives. Listen to what they say. They said, number one, for you to find peace, you need to spend time in nature. Number two, you need to meditate. Number three, you need to be grateful. You need to take responsibility for your own actions. Don't let your past mistakes define you. Love yourself. Practice acceptance and contentment, and the last one is the best, declutter. <laughs> Do you realize that all those things, and I'm not diminishing and trying to be funny, all those things are important, they're part of our lives, we all do that, we maybe go off, go for a walk, but listen, all those things are, all the things that were described here are things that we are trying to strive for to be able to reach that, it's outside of us, and God has says you can reach that peace because peace has been offered to you. He is the Prince of Peace. Not nature. Not meditation. He is the Prince of Peace. Ortland says this, listen to this, God's answer to everything that terrorized us is a child. The power of God is so far superior to the Assyrians that all the big shots of this world cannot defeat them by coming as a mere child. 
His answer to the bullies swaggering through history is not to become an even bigger bully. His answer is the birth of a child, the son who was given. And then he says this, as a wonderful counselor, he has the best ideas and strategies, so let's follow him. As a mighty God, he defeats his enemies easily, so let's hide behind him. As the everlasting Father, he loves us endlessly, so let's enjoy him. And as the Prince of Peace, he reconciled us while we were yet sinners. So let's welcome his dominion. And then he ends this with a guarantee in verse 7. His dominion will be vast. That's the first thing we see, which means superior, godly, above anything else we've ever seen. The second thing is his rule will be on the David's throne over the Davidic kingdom. And why is that important? It's because Isaiah's pledge here certifies beyond a shadow of the doubt that the text refers to the ultimate fulfillment of the Davidic covenant through the messianic figure. And this is what Smith says. And I agree with him 100%. In other words, God's going to be fulfilling his promise to the nation of Israel. And that's why when Isaiah says, listen, God has a track record. And even though you disobey and you rebel, and the leadership did not follow what God wanted for them, God will come to save you. And third, he will rule promoting justice and fairness. Now the question is how he's going to accomplish this. Look at the last sentence in your text. The zeal of the Lord of heaven's armies we will accomplish this. Isaiah is going to end this passage here with a rhetorical assurance that the fulfillment of all those things will come by God himself. But why? Because God is the only one able and capable of fulfilling those things, of being powerful and graceful and merciful and just and reasonable. His zeal for himself will guide this process. His determination to rescue his people and accomplish the unimaginable will, direct, will be directed by his own character. And through it all, God's marvelous actions and plans will be placed into motion because God's zeal for what is right is divine because it's based on his character. And that's why we celebrate Christmas. Because the prophecy of the child being born and the son that was given took place 2,000 years ago in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly the prophecy that Isaiah gives us. So let me end with this. Let me read you something here. A demonstration that a sinful people will need divine intervention in order to find hope that is only found in, the sight, in, in, found in light is necessary. And God, who loved the world, and he not only promised to rescue us, but he set his divine plan into motion. So every Christmas, we celebrate God's amazing gift to us. The gift of a child, a son who was born. The wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the Prince of Peace, the everlasting Father. His name is Emmanuel. God with us, and I hope you can say that about yourself. In the meantime, as we celebrate Christmas, we look forward to the time when he will come and he will rule and also judge. 
So let me close in a word of prayer, and I want you to just think with me for a second. Where, where is your life? Is Christ, is the Messiah, is the child that was supposed to be born in you? Have you accepted this gift? Father, I pray for all of us here. I pray that you would be kind to us as you've been, and I pray that you'd be gracious. I pray that we would not reject your gift. And Father, I pray that we would be able to say, Emmanuel, God with us, because we have accepted the gift that this child brought to us. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your love. Above everything else, we thank you for your love. In Jesus' name we pray.